So uh, welcome back to the Founder-Led Marketing Show. Today I have Greg Head, um, who I wanted to interview because I think he has a great bird's eye view on a lot of couple of questions that I want to explore with them. I'll just give a very short CV for you, Greg, uh, to give some <laughs> context on you and kind of brag and your name for you a little bit, because you seem like a humble person, so you'll probably not do it on your own. So you have a 30-year career in the software business. You served as a marketing leader at three startups that grew to global scale, ACT, SalesLogix, and Infusionsoft. Um, you helped grow two startups to 100 million in revenues as CMO president or product leader, and you have now worked intensely with over 100 founders, either as an advisor or consultant. And you are also the host of the Practical Founders podcast, which I love. I've been listening to many of those episodes. Oh, and great. They, they inspire a lot of my thoughts. And um, so, yeah, welcome to the show and thank you for joining. Hi, Finn. Glad to be here. Anything I glossed over or forgot or that should be added to that mini summary of your career? Well, I have a lot of experience. I've been doing this a long time and all the different generations. I've done everything in the software business except code for a long time. And I'm a technical enough person. And some of those were VC funded uh, companies. One that hmm. was successful, I helped co-found that went public back in 2000. Another one, I was the CMO and we raised $100 million and it didn't sell. So two different kinds of stories there. And the world is changing for software companies in the last five to 10 years. It's not the old game that it was 20 years ago when you needed lots of funding to start. And you couldn't go to market without more funding. And you had to get to 100 million to be worth something to pay back everybody. It's a very different game now. The world has changed, but the funding game kind of coasted along in the myth of everybody needs funding. So I'm kind of converted from... Uh, helping people raise funding uh, 10 years ago and being part of that machine to keeping most SaaS founders off of funding drugs. They're not what mm -hmm. we think they are these days. Right. Maybe also there, what's your current definition of what makes a practical founder? Yeah, I there's the spectrum in the software world of the funding approach. One is the big Silicon Valley VC funding and there's smaller VC funding, and there's all kinds of stages in between, a little angel funding and other kinds of creative. And then there's the hardcore bootstrap. We didn't raise any outside funding, just the founders own the company. However, they funded it out of their time, their savings, their services right. business or whatever. So there's some religions about bootstrapped and VC funding. That seems like to be the spectrum, but nobody's talking about the middle. And I claim for practical founders, why I called it that way, if you're not raising big institutional capital, preferred shares, somebody on your board, five or $10 million in funding and starting that game and often raising multiple rounds, if you're not doing that, but you have some funding, that's very practical. So there's a lot of practical approaches in between fund it all yourself and raise $100 million. So, and nobody's talking about the messy middle, I would say, mm -hmm. in most topics, right? The extremes are easy to describe and tweet about and throw rocks at the others like our politics mm. here in the States. But all the dimensions in between, nobody's been talking about it. So that's what I've been talking about on LinkedIn. And it's been a big conversation. I've been waving my hands and have a quite a large audience. And I talk to a lot of founders. So I'm out there saying, it isn't what you think it is. I'm not selling you funding. You should probably right. wait. And VCs know this, but uh, nobody, it's a sin of omission. They are not saying it. But um, 
you know, the funding industrial complex, the economy of funding fuels ecosystems and the lawyers and recruiters and everybody else who follows the funding. So usually there are few people in the ecosystem starting with people saying, is VC funding possibly even right for you? Mm -hmm. And let's just start there. So especially here in the States and especially at the run-up of 2021, everybody gets funding and everybody raised a lot and more is better became the myth that grew to outsized proportions. So, right. uh, and the reality went the other direction. So it's quite interesting how these I, things happen in the world. Yeah. I mean, there's a massive diversity and just even in software yeah. companies. And I feel like there's this big bias, especially if you spend time on LinkedIn, because I feel like it's always like the big VC funded companies who, yeah. you know, announce their massive round and have Sequoia yeah. on the cap table yeah. who kind yeah. of stand out. And it's kind of all the stories that we know, and it's, it's actually the minority, but there's this, right. I feel like most of the practical founders are maybe building a little bit more quietly without doing a lot of PR and announcing every single thing that they do. And they're just building. Yeah. Um, so that, that's an understatement, Finn. Uh, <laughs> there are more practical SaaS founders out there succeeding than the fewer slice, the smaller slice of VC funding, funded right. software companies, let alone the winners. Most VC funded companies don't win for the founders. They literally right. walk away with nothing and it was worth a try or, or it wasn't. But uh, it's it happens in almost everything in movies or media or whatever. The blockbuster game. Right. We hear about the top 10 of everything. We don't hear about the other 99,990. And right. uh, there's all kinds of dimensions. It does, doesn't always work either way you do it. But what's happened is the smaller slice that gets all the attention. The story's really interesting. 100 million from Sequoia, Unicorns, all that. Yeah. That gets the clicks. Uh, if you raise big funding at your company, it will be the highest traffic day that you've ever had in your business. Right. It's a story that our brains like to hear. And oh, my gosh, and there's clapping and so forth. But yeah, I heard somebody describe it. We don't clap when you fill your car up with gas because it's just fuel and it's kind of rocket fuel. It's pretty volatile. Right. It may not work. And it's painful what it doesn't. So, uh, I, you know, the silent majority, I would say, is out here. And if you're out in the ecosystem and you're not following the trail of the funding, you could see the world is quite big, especially outside the U.S. Europe yeah. and India, most companies, even more, even fewer companies raise big, big, right. big VC capital, and even more are more practical about it in all of the flavors. So uh, I'm a student of that. I'm kind of a nerd about literally the demographics and what's going on. And I've talked to three or four thousand founders in the last few years, and I've seen the pain and suffering if you raise funding and you shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. And I've seen the benefit of staying off the drugs and growing a business and doing it the way you want to. Um, right. And as Jason Fried said on your podcast, they're both hard. This is really hard stuff, but you might as well do a hard thing that works for you and your customers and your employees. Right. Uh, there's so much leverage in the software business these days, Finn, compared to 10 years ago. Coding right. and now AI and go to market and getting the value that was you know, it's exponential, not as linear as it was 20 years ago when we were just had to brute force our way into the markets and so forth. So there's a lot of ways to create a software business and go to market. Yeah. Uh, and you talk about founder led and I'm out here, one guy on LinkedIn, 
is getting the attention Rushing. of Jason Lemkin and everybody else, you know, uh, with founder-led marketing and so forth, I have leverage. I didn't have to spend $2 million in Facebook ads or something that didn't work. So right. you see what I'm saying? There's leverage and go-to-market. There's leverage at creating product. All the trillions spent on AI platforms and technologies coming to practical employees and practical founders yeah. who, who create valuable companies without big funding to help us do it better, faster, easier, stronger. So right. if if you're smart, uh, you can do it without brute force and very expensive um, venture capital in most cases. There's still a place for venture capital funding, by the way, just to put yeah, that out there. Totally. It's just way smaller than anybody thinks. In right. Yeah, I want to break down or, or go into yeah. those couple of things with product and go to market with you in a second. Just, yeah. Yeah. Diego, I see you joining here. Um, we got a couple of people on the live streams. I want to make these community events. So if you guys have any questions at any time, just either yeah. drop them into the chat and I'll try to incorporate them into the conversation or Diego, even feel free to turn on your video, uh, ask a question. Like I want to make these valuable to people in this ecosystem. And that means hopping on and asking your own questions and tackling your own problems. And Greg has a uh, not to curse shit ton of experience in this stuff. So, you know, you can pick his brain. So feel free to to go for it if you're comfortable. Otherwise, just drop the question in the chat. Um, so you're, you're working with a lot of founders. You're obviously also on top of the yes. advising that you do. You're having yeah. I mean, weekly conversations with founders on your podcast. I'm I also curious. have peer groups, CEO peer groups that meet every month and talk about the hardest things in their business with, and these each group of eight CEOs, practical founder peer groups, these practical founders building valuable software companies without VC funding, almost all under 10 million ARR okay. annual revenues. Uh, and I'm nitty gritty with those 40 founders. So like, I kind of know what's happening in a lot of markets, a lot of tactics this month. So, so let's go yeah. into it. What's happening this month? Anything that just broadly sticks out? Any repeating, recurring conversations that, that are happening? A couple things happened at the turn of the year that I could see and others could see in their groups. LinkedIn became more of a platform. Uh, more people woke up this year with New Year's resolutions to post every day on LinkedIn. <laughs> You've probably seen that. And for whatever reason, it hasn't hurt the algorithm. And there's more AI Mm, chatter, mm. you know, created com and comments and so forth. And LinkedIn hasn't broken. It's still very useful uh, for founders. Uh, the outbound model is kind of broken unless you have a very, you know, savvy advantage inside a market. You know mm -hmm. your market very well and, uh, you know, you're an influencer in your market, but there's all that brute force stuff. Capital efficiency is coming back to the fast growers. They mm -hmm. raised big funding and spent it, and now they're having to be capital efficient. So there's two kinds of capital efficient that we see. One is the VC funded that we're spending 10, 20, 100 million more every year than they made in revenues. Uh, that when they say capital efficient, it's like going on a diet. It's going to be temporary. It won't work in the long run. You can't change the DNA of a company and be frugal. If you've ever done that, mm -hmm. I've seen it happen many times. But there's capital efficient, uh, you know, in between never raise funding. There's capital efficient funders who aren't playing the crazy mm. power law blockbuster. It has to be a unicorn or we don't win kind of game. So there is a nudging of that kind of uh, that door that's happening. Software last year and a little bit this year, if you're selling to software companies, everybody, it's all tighter. 
in the U.S., where capital was cheap and spending was free for a couple of years, that's still a pretty tight market. So you have to be very disciplined. Uh, most of the practical founders are using AI inside their business to help mm -hmm. with customer service, coding, and the rest. And they're starting to add some features into their product. But uh, So those are a few things that I see across most groups. So you mentioned AI, you mentioned LinkedIn. Um, yeah. Is there... Are those the, the well, AI is in terms of product, I assume, like yeah, building the yeah. product more efficiently. Or using but also, inside your business, yeah. Uh -huh. Right, to, to streamline processes, service. customer mm -hmm. support, right? And then LinkedIn is go to market to reach yes. prospective customers mm -hmm. rather than cold outbound, cold email, yes. hiring an SDR to pound, you know, yeah. 100 calls a day. Is, is this capital efficient growth something that, in your opinion, is going to stay? Or is this, you know, oh, let's do it for one year. You mentioned the funded companies will go back to burning crazy amounts yeah. of money. Did the, you know, let's say less funded companies, more practical, more bootstrap companies, did they shift at all? Or was it actually they've always been capital efficient and this is, you know, like home turf for them? Yeah, yeah, it was home turf. They didn't have layoffs when the markets came mm -hmm. off and interest rates went up and capital retracted, which we knew it would if you've I've been through Mm -hmm. Three booms and busts kind of thing. So practical founders kept chubbing along, literally, yeah. right? They, it wasn't, uh, uh, it's it's really interesting. Uh, and they didn't weren't stressed about it. And Jason Free talks about this. Like mm -hmm. if you raise $100 million and you spend most of it and you burn a lot of money and you don't have a profitable business model yet, which most don't, if you don't raise another round, you're screwed. And ha having that gun to your head is no, no way to run a business and make decisions. But if you're profitable and break even and you've got it and steady and you know your market and a lot of these are vertical market focused or regional focused or whatever, it's hard, but you're not in crisis mode. There was no crisis mode right. that popped up for all these practical founders right. um, who didn't have VC funding. And so the, your question about is capital efficiency here to stay? The answer is, heck yes. <laughs> Starting with the IPOs and the public markets in the US, where a lot of the end game for all this VC funding is, you know, it's six to seven times revenue and the more profitable, the better, like multiples kind of thing. So that's really reasonable. And that's a little higher than it used to be. And like, that's the end game right now. So the end game is kind of capital efficient. I don't think low interest rates and silly funding Mm. Silly valuations is coming back anytime soon. And I don't think it'll have the same effect. By the time it, if it ever comes back, I think people are going to be a lot more wise about this. We had an mm. opioid crisis here for opioid painkillers that mm. were literally prescribed by the funding and the healthcare industrial complex here in the US that created enormous addiction and mortality. That was a bad practice. <laughs> There's good practice in VC, but most of it's not. It's actually, uh, it's actually, a, you know, an overdose. It's not very useful for founders. Right. It might be useful for VCs. I'm talking about the founder side of the table. So totally. I think capital efficiency is going to come back uh, because it's an awesome way to run a business, and you can. You couldn't do it 20 years ago the same way you can do it now, and so more founders should. How would Go you create 10 describe, million dollar businesses? Yeah. Go ahead. How would you describe the biggest benefits of running a, you know, practically run? software business? Yeah. If you are uh, thinking about the business seriously and deeply, 
real customer value, real how do I find customers and how do I build something and how do I get the team and aligning revenues and your expenses. So let's just start there, like get them in the same place. So it's frugal and it's high value and it's disciplined about the metrics and the business and conversion and the rest. That's all very good and healthy stuff. And that's a great way to start a business. Um, starting a business with funding is kind of a myth anyway, but uh, starting a business where you're following the customer mm -hmm. and you're chasing what they say they'll pay for and the value, that's a, a very healthy way to do it. Most times people say, oh, I need funding to, so I can quit my day job and the rest. And really, that's a bad practice. I think founders should be spending some of their own money and their time to get through the experiments to find something that's useful out there. And startups are experiments. They mostly don't work. So they take time. So here's a few of the benefits of not playing the VC funding game mm -hmm. or putting your hat on and saying, I want, VC, you know, that's the game I want to play. I'm going to go talk to funders and the rest. Founders in the US can spend 50% of their time for a year or 18 months learning the game, building their network, trying to raise money, getting through the process to raise a million or two or five to get started. And that could have, in most cases, in many cases, B2B SaaS, you could have gotten that much in revenue for the same effort. And that's just very healthy, that kind of thing there. So the farther you can get without you know, inviting others in. Um, the second thing is, it's a pro game. When you invite VCs in and you take 5 million to the piece of the company and say, we're going to grow it, there's an obligation and a, a lot of terms and a lot of alignment that has to happen for it to work for both sides. And, and pressure. And pressure. And I played that game and I liked the pressure. We were aligned. Mm -hmm. That's what we were doing. We mm -hmm. wanted to do it together. Um, it wasn't, I didn't want to grow big and they did and that kind of thing. But um, it, but uh, we were all in. So I worked six at plus days a week. Mm -hmm. That 60, 70, 80 plus travel hours for 20 years in the VC funded game. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to do that in the modern game. You could, we could have gotten to, in one, one of the cases, the same result without the VC funding if we just a couple of years slower. So that's the other thing. For founders, their equity value, their lifestyle, and the DNA of the business is way better. Mm -hmm. If you can get to one or three or 10 million ARR without uh, institutional funding. When you raise $5 million and value your company at $25 million, an investor who puts in that $5 million is on your board, and you've just agreed that they are to get to at least a 10x and hopefully a 20x of that. So that's like half a billion and a billion dollar exit, which 99% of software businesses are not going to exit for a billion dollar, 99.9%. So there's just better odds of success when you're doing it without funding. It sounds counterintuitive. That's actually the myth. I thought you raise funding, so you increase your odds and it gets easier. No, mm -hmm. it actually doesn't. Right. It's both hard to get up and running. But once you're up and running, it's way easier. I know founders who are growing, have SaaS businesses in Europe growing over 50%, 50 to 70% that are very profitable and they they don't work all day. It's kind of like, crazy. To me, that's like a, it's a revelation. It's possible. So like, is it, let me just like the last thing here, Finn is, 
the possibility that I know 300 founders who worked really hard and were very savvy and are now worth 20 to $200 million and didn't work 80 hours a week because they did something a little different, practical founders. And they're on my practical founders podcast and I know more of them. I see that like there's way more of those than the VC funded uh, success stories. Like there's a probability or a possibility if you get something up and running, it's going to be worth something remarkable. You could run it forever like Jason Freed at Basecamp mm -hmm. or sell it. Um, and on the other side, there's the possibility that one of these VC funded companies just might be the one we read about. Mm -hmm. The possibility over there, I like, choose your possibilities. Yeah, lots of unsung heroes in that. I think that's yeah. why people like Jason Fried are so, you know, yeah. so valuable that they put their voice out there. Um, yes. What I'm wondering, like, do you feel like this is an arbitrage that's going to go away in the sense that, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you, there's also the, the indie hackers, especially in yeah. the kind of Twitter realm. And there's, yeah. you know, people yeah. who are a one people business. They have maybe two mm -hmm. or three freelancers who support them and yeah. they're making $400,000 in monthly revenue or something like right. that with, with software. Yeah. And it just, and they're, and they're working, you know, like part-time or something building the software. Yeah. Is this right. like a momentary moment in history where the rest just hasn't caught up yet that this is possible and they're still pursuing the old model and hiring a bunch of yes. SBRs and- Yes, there's the old model of employment, go get a salary versus doing some work to create your independence as an indie hacker or a, you know an independent person. That's why most, like more than 50% of Kids in the U.S. want to be a YouTuber when they grow up. Why would I want a job when like YouTubers work a lot too? But like, um, so there's a change coming in employment slowly, and I think the same change is coming to the growth game, uh, partly fueled by the SaaS uh, business, the model of recurring revenues. It's very steady and predictable relative mm -hmm. to you know seasonal and you know 20 years ago you had to go get 85 percent of your revenue for that quarter every quarter. Pretty nice. stressful. It's a public company. And now 85% shows up and you get a few more and it's it's a flywheel business. Uh, and that's why SaaS business and recurring revenue businesses that are healthy, have healthy metrics and so forth, and profitable or you know, growing is still more important than profitable, but they're worth multiples of revenue, which is a revelation. Around the world, you sell a company, it's worth multiples of profit. You sell a SaaS company mm -hmm. with recurring revenues and high margins, it's worth multiples of revenue. So there's life-changing wealth opportunities if you create a $5 million annual recurring revenue software business. So I don't think this is going away. The word is getting out. Interesting. I was listening to this conversation on the All In podcast, sure. and they were talking about the fact that, you know, software businesses are generally characterized by high gross margins of mm -hmm. 70, 80, 90%. Mm -hmm. And that... Sure, that can stay the same, but actual, you know, free cash flow will revert back to the mean of what other businesses and other business models yeah. do, because it's just a lot more people will go into this business and realize that you have high growth margins and therefore it's it's a superior mm -hmm. business model. And so more people do it. And so the arbitrage goes away. And so in the end, you're yeah. left with the same amount of profit or cash at the end of the month as you would run like a more traditional service-based business or something like that. I don't know. That's just what they were talking about. 
I, I think in some business, I, uh, I totally hear that. So what for listeners out there, uh, it means that you sell, if you have a thousand customers in software and you sell one more customer and they pay you a thousand dollars a year, you might spend $10 a year on the AWS hosting to sign them up. Like if you sell a car or a hamburger, you don't, you have costs associated with it. There's all, there's very little cost in selling the next customer in software. Yeah. It doesn't mean they're all profitable. Why aren't, if they're so high margin, why aren't they profitable? It's because they're spending all the rest of it to grow as fast as possible and right. do other things. So that's one of the things about software is that it can grow fast because there's all this money left over to spend on growth, sales and marketing or profits. So I don't see this happening. I think there's plenty of opportunities. I think there's always going to be billion dollar unicorn level opportunities, but what's happening is a widening of the spectrum of software businesses that are very interesting within every industry, solving deep problems, blended models, a little services, a little marketplace, a little transaction revenue with fintech and things like that. There's all kinds of creative ways that create a sustainable business that's valuable for customers. Yeah. What do you, from the, from the people that you work with, what do you see are maybe some of the common patterns between the practical founders that are successful in terms of mindset, in terms of skill set, in terms of what they decide to focus on? And I'll let right. you decide how to define successful. Yeah, uh, that's right. We get to define success. And that's one of the big things. My version of success is I go to Europe and I talk to founders and they say, you know, that thing you were talking about, Greg, for the last few years on LinkedIn, we've been following it. And now we have, there's a, you know, the wave is created. That's how I, I define success talking to these founders. So the practical founders I work with and talk to, there's a diversity of founders. First of all, let's talk about what's different. They're all ages, all regions. They're not just in big cities. Some are technical, mm -hmm. some are business oriented. Some started out of a service company. Some started with just funding. Some get a little bit of funding from friends and family and some other things. All kinds of ways to do it. You look at the template of VC funded, it looks like uh, middle-aged white guys that came from the same universities that talk the same way. There's all kinds of diverse men and women in India. It's all over the place. So it's a lot of diversity in the practical funding universe. What's the same Finn, is that they are all serious about their business. They're not over here thinking about how to be cool and how to play the game and how to look good for somebody else. What's my customer? How do I get a, to extraordinary value? How do I get great employees? How does this thing grow steadily every year and get better every year? Um, and once you get an up and running, you know, I've, 40 founders that are headed towards 10 million. Once you get three or five, that's million in revenues, right? There's a kind of little flywheel going. They're not going backwards. They don't need outside funding and so forth, but they can choose what their success path is. And I have a 60 page ebook about this on my website, practicalfounders.com, but it's a common question. All right, what do you do? Well, you could run it forever like Jason Fried at Basecamp and take out profits. Uh, you could go as fast and hard as you want right now and sell it to grow revenues to 20 or 30 million. And I have folks on the Practical Founder Podcast who've done that. And then you could grow it to 5 million fast and then slow it down. 
and take money out with more profits. So don't wait for somebody to buy it in 20 years and then you have to do something else. How about you just run this business, which is so much fun and live the life you want, you know, with the $2 million of cash prize money going to the founders every year. Mm -hmm. That's another way to do it. You could get it to 400,000 in revenue and flip it like some of these indie hackers and the, you know, the starters, flippers. Uh, and you could sell it to a strategic buyer. You could sell it to a financial buyer and win your prize and all that. There's all kinds of ways to play the game and you get to change your mind. Once you take VC funding, it's go big or go home. Mm. It probably won't work. You'll end up with nothing, but there's a chance that it could be the famous one and you're the, the rare winner, you know, billionaire winner. Right. Uh, I, the first conversation we have with practical founders is what do you think you want to do with this? Mm. And I think I want to run it forever. And then an opportunity comes and you say, well, my life has changed. Maybe I'll sell it or no, I don't need to sell it now. By the way, that's another way to get the best value for your company is to have a company that doesn't need to be sold. Mm -hmm. Say yeah. no, no, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So there's all kinds of possibilities, very diverse uh, inside the, the serious and practical game of creating a SaaS business. So let's say within that realm of different goals, right? Someone might want to grow it as fast as possible and sell it. Someone might grow to a decent point yes. and then just make it super profitable and have a great life right. while keep running the company. But there's yep. still people who are better at those achieving those things than others. Yeah. So I'm just curious, what commonalities do you see in those who okay. are maybe better able to pursue whatever goal that they have? Well, now we're back to craziness of the entrepreneurial game and mm -hmm. the software game. I'm going to create something new that didn't exist. I'm going to solve a problem. I'm going to create something and I don't, I'm going to do it without funding. They all have are pretty hardcore about this. It's not normal behavior. Normal behavior is get a job and work for the big company. I'm going to work eight hours, my 40 hour work week. On top of my other 80-hour work week, or my 40-hour work week is my day job. I'm not going to quit my day job for three years until there's enough money in my, coming out of my business net mm -hmm. for me to stop working there. Oh, that's how you did it. Oh, how did you do it? Well, I saved up enough uh, by not spending money on new cars and big houses and stuff, and I spent a year building this thing and living cheaply. Okay. That's how you did it. Oh, I had a service business that I grew up to this. And then we moved the team over and so forth. So they all, whether they're in Europe or the U uh, S or Canada, or Australia, India, they all say that same stuff. Mm -hmm. They're doing the hard things and like, they don't think anything of it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's any harder than raising VC capital and trying to win that game really, mm -hmm. but they're pretty hardcore about these. These that's by nature. That's why these are my people. Right. They're not afraid of doing the work and being smart about it and changing their minds and not looking cool. As somebody I just had a friend of mine in uh in Phoenix who I just had on my podcast, Greg Scorby, Scorsby says, We're not so much fun at parties. We're not the fun kids at cool kids. We're we're the we fanatics who've attached ourselves to a problem and spend 10 years of our lives, you know, all in trying to solve it. And right. It's to me, that's the most fun on earth, but uh, makes sense. Do practical founders try to compete with their VC funded shiny 
peers or competitors or and if so how do they go about it if you know you have a competitor who has 20 million yeah. in funding and they're pouring all this money into marketing and everything right. while you're sitting here saying oh man like they just right. doubled or tripled their sales team and i'm sitting here you know having to pay yeah. everything out of cash flow let's talk about a, a couple things here first of all most markets can't get vc funding they're not going to be big enough mm to sell to a certain kind of manufacturer in Germany, a right. really important tool and go build a $30 million software business is not enough to attract the attention of any VC, even the smallest ones. Okay. So there's most opportunities look like that vertical market opportunities. And, you know, that's a great business, but it's just not VC scale. So they pat you on the head and say, sorry, that's not very cool, but that's a really cool business kind of thing. So you're not going to get VC um, competition there. Mm -hmm. That's a nice place to be, especially if you have an interesting business model that can't be replicated because VCs won't, don't like to have too much services or something like that. So now you're, let's talk about the markets where VC funded companies exist in your space. It used to be that was like, oh, the bootstrapper, now they have some funded, the bootstrapper got this market started. Now the fast movers are coming into this space and they're getting VC funded. I played that game. It used to be like, well, sorry, bootstrapper. Thanks for starting it. We'll take it from here. And that was the game. But the reality is just as often that a funded company comes in and gets the market share, growth for market share game and spends money to get that, just as often they don't get it. And the steady bootstrapper, the tortoise and the hare, the tortoise keeps chugging and they spend all this money and uh, they get ahead of themselves. They get ahead of the market. The market isn't moving so fast and manufacturing is a good one, right? We're going to bring all this latest, greatest technology and 1% of the market wants to use that right now. And there's not a useful DNA of spending too much money, hurry up and grow and growth at all costs and so forth. So I've seen it just as many times. A dozen people on my podcast say we were threatened when this came in. Uh, we didn't change anything, but they came and went. $150 million was set in our space, and now we're up at $5 million ARR, and we didn't take any outside funding. We're the last company standing. Here in the States, I don't know how it is, uh, if you sell your company to a big company or a financially-oriented company, a roll-up or financial buyers, customers can feel the price goes up, mm -hmm. the customer service goes down, the friendly employees, that super DNA attitude that came out of every contact with the company kind of fades as the puts the screws to the business. Customers don't like dealing with that. And then the friendly, savvy, you know, practical one comes along. So that's happening in dentistry and the legal uh, small practice uh, office management software is hmm. people know that the company lawyers know which ones have too much funding and which ones are not. And they, they can find them. So that's another business. That's an arbitrage opportunity right now. Find the ones that are struggling with too much funding and there's an opportunity to grow. Interesting. Reverse arbitrage or something you would say. It didn't exist 20 years ago, but it exists now. It's so You can funny. literally say on your website, we don't have big private equity funding. And people say, oh, thank God. The customers oh, like, isn't that interesting? Because we could tell. Yeah. I mean, I'm just noticing, you know, I grew up in this native digital world and social media and self-promotion and yeah mm -hmm. i live on linkedin and like even i yeah. i mean we generally work with software companies that are doing between one and ten million and 
I still, it still blows my mind when a company doing $6 million in revenue got zero outside funding. We started working with them a couple months ago. They didn't have a website yeah. until a couple months ago. Like <laughs> that, that even exists and is possible for me as a person who's just, it's all digital. If you don't have a website, you don't exist. When mm -hmm. in reality, they're like, no, we're good. We have customer relations and they refer us and we have great business. Yeah. And so, yeah, we just never needed a website. Well, there's all kinds of ways to do that. And, but look at the principle here. Let's get down to first principles, the laws of nature underneath this. It isn't that you need a fancy website to exist or the billboards, the advertising or something, something that does something amazing for a customer who gets the value and pays you and then keeps paying you. Mm -hmm. Like, let's focus on that and whatever works above there is possible. So I, I literally think it's the same laws of nature in business. Uh, and there's some, some di di dynamics that are slightly different in software, the recurring revenue margins and so forth. But VC funded companies and bootstrap companies and all these practical founder funded companies we're all playing with the same laws of nature. We're all using the same code and the same internet and the same LinkedIn and the same. Uh, but it's how you do it, which kind of changes everything. It's the same SAS metrics, like the, I don't know, 100 SAS metrics. They're, they're yeah. not using different SAS metrics. They're using them differently, whether you're VC funded or not. And uh, I don't have anything against VCs. I talk to them all the time and VC funded companies. It's great. Go change the world. I just think the odds are bad for most founders, especially if they don't specifically know exactly the game they're signing up for right? and align with that game. And uh, there's a place for it and it's well-served. So it's all good. Yeah. Is there anything that um, you're currently noticing that you keep suggesting or recommending to the founders that you work with? Any patterns there where they keep asking for similar question and you... Like, yeah, there's age old ones. And you've seen this, I'm sure, Finn, is once you get to a million or two or three in revenue, that kind of experimentation zone, is it this customer and this product and this price and this channel? We don't know. Let's try again. Getting to product market fit, we would say, in the industry. Um, companies that are one to three or one to five million ARR, depends on your price point when you hit this. but Something changes there, and it's always been that way. Uh, meaning, and the mark, let's call it the marketing side of things. We got these tactics, and we said these things, and we put it on LinkedIn, and we got these orders, and it turned into this business. And now it's not working so well now that we're up and running. We need to add another one just like that. And we need to do LinkedIn twice as hard, right? So the myth of more, just mm. do the same things more. Well, at some point, more doesn't work the same way that it used to. There's inflection points in business and bootstrapped and funded founders usually say, how do we do more, more channels, more regions, more countries, more products, more this kind of thing. Uh, it's age old. Our brains think this. We're kind of looking at the numbers and patching it on top there. But that's usually the time where founders should be looking down from the tactical into the strategic side of their business. Mm -hmm. You're really serving two kinds of customers. Which one is it? Mm. Started off saying we're small business to the enterprise. Find your home and say no to the rest. Mm. That's a game. It is, you, your strategic focus, that's actually part of the definition of product market fit, is we just serve these 
We just do these things. We do it amazingly. And we have practical channels that have to reach this level of efficiency and so forth. So usually it's almost all companies go through it and it's a revelation to founders. A $10 million software company is almost always more focused from the outside mm-hmm. in than a $1 million company because they're still thinking, maybe I could do a little of this and maybe I could do a little of that. And right, the experimentation has uh, overgrown. And then you have to pare back and so forth. So strategic focus in the right way, where the leverage is, makes all the tactics work better. So there's no such thing as a $100 million company that just did all the scrappy, many things for many people thing that you do to get a business going. So there's a, you know, I call it the scaling point. And it's something related to product market fit meets your go-to-market. When? For example, yeah, I'm a SaaS, I'm a SaaS helper. I've been part of this game for, uh, you know, as long as SaaS has been around. When I said I'm just for practical founders who are building valuable software companies without big funding, the words I said got more focused mm-hmm. and my, and people heard it 10 times better. Mm. Oddly enough, I was for fewer people right. saying similar kinds of things, but in a different kind of way. And I get 5 million views of my post on LinkedIn a year. You hear what I'm saying? That was a focus move, focus to grow. So that, you know, that's my long story about yeah. a universal uh, growth challenge where entrepreneur brain meets markets, customer when, brain. When is it the right time though to, to focus and stop experimenting? Um, I mean, we are not a software business, but I'm still, I'm like one thing that I'm right. currently like literally right now trying to figure out is should we focus on early stage or growth stage? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, uh, experimentation and decisions like that uh, uh, should always continue. But here's the deal. When you're starting, everything's open and you're trying everything and you could move around and is it this or this? And that's the advantage of startups is you can experiment and try this and stop and pull back and go over there and try it again and try it again. Big companies don't have that advantage. But when, when customers are lining up and you can deliver value, one to three million headed towards 10 million in software these days, B2B software, uh, your customers won't want you to be changing your mind every month on the website. Right. And your employees don't want this either. In order to get people to line up, you need to have a narrow and differentiated focus. They say, oh, this is for me. This is my place. Just like a reason I'm talking to you. And you have to be able to deliver it consistently with very high value, which is harder than it looks, even in software. So the product roadmap in software, it says, if you have big customers and small ones, they're going to be competing for, mm-hmm. you know, and then we're for big and small companies. No, you're not. So for you, I would say, so at some point, the core business gets less experimental and mm-hmm. moves slower to change. And then you have experiments run off to the side. And this is the innovator's dilemma mm-hmm. is the big thing gets bigger. And the experiments are harder to change the big thing. So it's one of the, you know, it's a common problem for us as people. You know, we're not as flexible as we get older. And it's a common innovator's dilemma for big companies. Besides, you know, what you said of telling companies when they maybe hit a growth ceiling to look down and strategically decide what to focus on. Are there any other things that you keep kind of repeating or trying to hammer into the founders that you talk to and keep suggesting maybe things that they're actually a little resistant to or 
I think another reason to look down. So the great thing about a up and running business is you can look inside it and see things and get data informed decisions that aren't just, I think, you know, this would work. So I think it is the art of finding leverage in everything that you do. Make a post on LinkedIn. It gets a certain result that creates a certain impact. Okay. How do I increase the result and the impact? And if I can't do that, how can I find something else? That's usually the game is founders are out here in tactical land in the firefight of the business. They're thinking about a tactical tweak. How do I do email better? Gosh, if I just LinkedIn twice as much this week, Mm -hmm. like that's usually not as powerful as saying we're just like 80% of your, here's the most common therapy, any percent of your business is these kind of customers. Mm-hmm. Just put your foot down and say it's going to be those kind of customers and line your whole business there. But do that across your marketing channels, mm-hmm. across your employees. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an 80-20 rule in the, of the leverage game that applies to everything you do. All the experiments, which one worked the best? And stop doing the rest. By the way, that's what AI does so quickly in the Facebook algorithm. It tests tests 10,000 things and then gets it down and it finds the one thing that works best and turns off everything else. Us as founders, we have a hard time doing that. Yeah, Efficiencies in our system and every process and so forth. Go find the leverage. There's more leverage inside your business than outside the business with funding. I'm curious, just because you you mentioned LinkedIn and obviously we we play a lot in that space. Mm What do you suggest to founders in that realm? Should they post themselves? Should they, you know, outsource it to someone? Is it, does it make sense at any certain stage in your opinion where you tell them, okay, no, wait a little, don't do it right now. Or, you know. Yeah. And I think there's a flavor for all of these. Some founders, it's, it's in my DNA to speak and share and contribute and do the work. Uh, it's in. It's not in everybody's DNA to do that. So, um, first of all, if you just say I'm going to start posting on LinkedIn, it probably won't have an effect. <laughs> but if you are a founder who knows something and you have a passion and a focus, and you come out saying the thing that people don't say, you know, contrast and differentiate, and you say interesting things that are useful to people. LinkedIn is a place where that actually works. I don't know that it works on Twitter or Instagram mm-hmm. or something like that. But I say really useful, practical, wordy things, talking about the nerd details of a software business and the game, the inner game and all of that stuff. And it works on LinkedIn. So have something to say that's useful, differentiated, uh, and interesting. And that's probably the harder part. If you don't, then probably stay away from LinkedIn because the AI <laughs> algorithms are going to do it as badly as you would. Yeah. And nobody's going to pay attention. But um, I do think, by the way, that all this technology and now AI and the rest makes humans a voice from a person, makes people more valuable. Mm. Because we're still processing it there. We People want to hear from people right? about certain things, the important stuff. How should I fund my company? What's my end game? How do I get out of, you know, how do I stop struggling with this? Maybe ChatGPT can answer some things, but people aren't trusting it that way. Yeah, I know we're getting now into the nitty gritty on this a little bit, but it seems to me like almost everything you post does really well. What's your way of Mm -hmm. 
determining okay. what's worth saying versus not, what is right. that interesting, contrastful, right. insightful. I'll say my thing. method. So people yeah. can follow me on LinkedIn and see my posts. And my average post gets 30,000 impressions and 100 to 200 likes. So it's I didn't just show up to do this. I've been posting for years and I've been learning this game and improving. So do it for years, like people say. But here's my approach. If I'm in my peer group meetings and we're talking about really hard stuff that people are going through. And then I'm in another peer group meeting and we're talking about the same thing, mm. different context. And then I talk to more people and we're talking about the same thing. When I wake up on Friday morning and say, what should I write about? I kind of go back to what did founders bring to me? It's like search intent in Google. Somebody typed in the words and said, I have a problem with, I'm struggling with, I have a question about. And then I think of all the conversations I had and literally the conversation. And then I kind of bring that. Sometimes I say, we talked about this. Here's what I said. Here's what they said. Sometimes I just say, here's the answer. If you mm -hmm. have this problem, here's the context. Here's the, it depends. A little bit of that. So I bring that. I'm really not, I don't have a high horse about my views. Everybody needs to hear my views. Here's something important to people. And if it's important to them, it's important to a lot of other people. And here mm -hmm. is what was useful. And interesting to them. And I have an interesting way of saying it. I have a, I'm pretty clever about saying it so people can hear it. Right. So that's mostly what I do is I'm I'm extroverted. So I having the conversation first before this. But these are we're all getting to the same laws of nature. I've been talking about a lot of these things, this product market fit game. I've been talking about this since 1991 with all in fanaticism. I was one of the first product managers in software. So Yes, these are, and I have some thoughts and I see dimensions and there's a conversation and context. So yes, uh, that's how I generally approach it. Actually, Love these it. guys have a problem here and this was useful. Let's see if this would be useful to others. And it usually is. Totally. Yeah, one of the things that we kind of require when we work with a customer that the founder or CEO still has lots of interactions with customers and prospective yes. customers because those- oh my gosh. Those conversations is what fuels the content, really. Yeah. And the specialness here. This mm. isn't a, just, oh, we have customers and we do the things and whatever was in the big book, we do what's in the book. No, it is, this is an intense game. And there's a lot of nuance and context and subtlety. And that's where founders are magic. They can make magic. They can literally change the world and their communities inside their own industry. Um, and those are the kinds of people we're interviewing on the podcast. And these are my Practical Founders podcast. And they, uh, they're they everywhere. You just don't see them. Nobody's clapping for, oh my, we finally made it to profitability at 1.5 million ARR. And by, we finally shed the bad customers we had to take to get it going. Those people don't clap for those headlines, but that's actually more meaningful than we raised $10 million. Totally. Is there, you have so many conversations with founders and on the podcast, and I know they say don't pick favorites, but are there any favorite stories, nuggets that you remember from a conversation that just really stood out to you that you still well, keep telling people or thinking about? Yeah. Uh, I've told this story a whole bunch of times. Uh, is a, a Danish uh, founder who lives in San Francisco, Esben Fries Jensen. He was on my podcast uh, last year. I uh, grew to 3 million ARR uh, in his second company. His first company was VC funded, his second company. Um, 
user flow was three people, two coders, uh, one coder, him, the growth guy, doing all the customer website and everything else, and one designer. And they got to four million, four and a half million ARR revenues with happy customers and without any outside funding. And they just sold the company for life-changing wealth and uh, next part of the journey there. So you don't have to create a $5 million business and keep growing it with through two and a half people, that kind of thing. But that's more likely to be successful and more common than the big unicorn billion dollar companies we hear about. So that, that's a good one there. Yeah, I remember one. I, I'm trying to find her name right now. Maybe you remember. I think it was Kelly, Kelly yes. Mann or something, a CPA. Kelly Mann, right. Yes, and she, she was a yeah she she oh was gosh. a CPA for like I don't know ten or twenty years and yes she just kept getting rebuffed by her male coworkers for bringing ideas yes. and then eventually yes. she realized that it's actually the entrepreneurial spirit in her that is yes. coming up with ideas and she just right. founded a business and crushed and solved it. the problem she was doing manually in the audit world yeah you know? yeah, yeah that yeah. was a very niche and she immediately got to three million revenues. It's insane. And she survived breast cancer as well. Yes, during right. This right, whole yep. ordeal. Yeah. Right. And uh so to me, these are my heroes. Yeah. I get chills just talking about it. Like yeah. uh, her family and her customers and uh her industry. She was more at home charging forth and solving the problem than they said, stop doing that, you know, inside yeah, yeah, yeah. her accounting practice kind of thing. So which is, you know, a common. Stephanie Powers was just on the podcast. She was a heart surgery nurse practitioner on the weekends, and she built a property uh, a real estate investment company with her husband over 10 years, and we're buying and selling 150, 200 houses a year and had a whole team and everything. The CRM had a problem they were using. She went out to Salesforce and said, can you build me something and can we do something? And they you know, it was a little patronizing. And they said, well, it cost a hundred thousand hours to get started. She said, screw you. I'm just going to do it myself. They laughed and she did it. And she's got heading towards $5 million era business. She built a CRM app for the real estate uh, property investing business here in the States on Salesforce herself for two years. Like those, it's just not superhuman. It's just serious. Yeah. Like, Golly, those just are so inspiring to me. She's changing her industry with the DNA and the passion of comes out of being in an industry and seeing a problem and solving the problem. Love it. So, uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways to do it. Where do you find where do you find practical founders? Like, do they approach you at everywhere? This point yes, they're everywhere. Um, they're, so, uh, and yeah, so they find me on LinkedIn, and I say, hey, we should. Here's the thing. As many practical founders, I talked to one in Germany yesterday, said, no, we don't want to talk about our story. 10 million ARR, bootstrapped, no outside funding. Sounds German to me. Podcast. <laughs> yes, right. And they said, about German, yeah, like, I do not want to talk about it. I don't want to make a fuss. Uh, I don't want to share my secrets. I don't want people to know. That's pretty common. So just as many people say, yes, here's what I did, but I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. And others do. So, and the journey is always different. Here's another way to do it is pretty much the message of the Practical Founders podcast. Love it. All right, we'll end and it no here. Excuses. 
Greg, thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. Um, We'll link your podcast, your LinkedIn, all the things in the show notes. So, I mean, if they have not yet checked you out, they should definitely check you out. And any finishing thoughts uh, from your side? Keep spreading the word. Um, The practical (laughs) founder wave is happening. It was always there in Europe. It wasn't very visible, right? And so now it's becoming more visible and, and more serious. Yeah. No, I love that that you are, and I think Nathan Latka is doing some of that too, giving these people a platform and yeah. sharing those stories a little bit more. Um, cool. Yeah. yeah. Greg, thank awesome. you so much for your time. Thanks, Finn. All right. Have a good one.